welcome back to Wake Up with Nubian Tigers Talk, a podcast brought to you by a group of Black Princetonians where we talk about issues impacting our Black and Brown communities. My name is Michelle Jacobs, and I'm here as always with my co-host, Ray Smaltz. So Ray, you know, we've been doing this series on uh, learning our allies, and um, mm -hmm. we're very fortunate this week to have a fantastic a uh, speaker who's going to be talking to us about uh, Latino communities and some of the important um, details that we, we should know in terms of dealing with them as allies. So what, who do we have queued up and what can you tell us about? Yes, Michelle, uh, yeah, and we should give credit to uh, one of our Nubian tigresses, uh, Marcia Gonzalez-Kimbrough, who recommended uh, Mark to us. Uh, so Mark Hugo Lopez is Director of Race and Ethnicity Research at the Pew Research Center, where he leads planning of the center's research agenda focused on chronicling the diverse and ever-changing racial and ethnic landscape of the United States. He's an expert on issues of racial and ethnic identity, Latino politics and culture, the U.S., Hispanic, and Asian American populations, global and domestic immigration, and the U.S. demographic landscape. Uh, Lopez is co-editor of Adjusting to a World in Motion, Trends in Global Migration and Migration Policy. He's also the co-author of The Future of the First Amendment and has contributed chapters to several books about voting and young Latinos. Lopez received his doctorate in economics from Princeton University, Go Tigers. He's an author of reports about the Hispanic electorate, Hispanic identity, and immigration. Uh, and Mark frequently appears in national and international media in both Spanish and English. Mark, really, really exciting to have you on our podcast uh, for this episode. Uh, thank you, Ray. It's a real pleasure to be here, and I look forward to our conversation. So, Mark, you know, many of us are familiar with the Pew, Pew Research Center, but some aren't. So share with our listeners what the Pew Research Center is about and what your particular role is at the center. So the Pew Research Center is based in Washington, D.C. Uh, we're a nonpartisan, non-advocacy organization. And in many ways, we're like think tanks in Washington. We study questions that are of importance to the nation and importance to the world. Um, but because we are nonpartisan, non-advocacy, the thing that distinguishes us is we don't take positions on policy. We don't make recommendations. In fact, rather than calling ourselves a think tank, we call ourselves a fact tank. And that is on purpose. Um, now, the Pew uh, Research Center is funded by the Pew Charitable Trust to a large degree. In fact, the trust tends to fund almost all of our work. We also do get funding from other uh, foundations around the country and around the world. Um, but our work is really about providing information to the public. I lead a team that studies race and ethnicity in the United States. This is a team that is looking at everything from the politics of Latino voters to um, to uh, the demography, the changing demography of America, as immigration has brought uh, more than more than 60 million people since 1965 to the country. How has that changed who Americans are today? To also just looking at the attitudes and values and, I, and the ways in which people see their identity, both among Black Americans, Asian Americans, but also among uh, Hispanic Americans and white Americans as well. So my team covers a lot of a lot of a lot of real estate, but this is a uh, one part of a broader set of uh, uh, project areas at the center that cover everything from religion to U.S. politics to international public opinion to uh, social trends affecting the country today. That's that's quite a lot. <laughs> yeah, can I ask a real quick question, Michelle? So m make sure, Mark, the help our listeners to understand that 
your group is nonpartisan and why you're considered that because so many different, you know, sites like yours are funded by conservative groups, PACs, so on and so forth. Why should we take Q's information to be more nonpartisan as well as objective as someone else? That's a great question. Uh, it's a really great question. And the Pew Research Center was founded as part of the Pew Charitable Trust Information Initiatives Program, which was designed to provide information to the U.S. public in a nonpartisan, non-advocacy way. Now, this is something that the trust started doing way back in the 90s. And so in the 1990s, they started to establish and fund programs like the precursor of the team that I'm on, the Pew Hispanic Center, uh, which was founded in, in 2001, and it was intended to provide information, just information, no, no position, no point of view, uh, to about the nation's growing, fast-growing then Hispanic population, but to do so to the public so that the public can then use that information in public debates. That's really our intention here as part as being a part of the Pew Research Center and our mission of being nonpartisan and non-advocacy. So to also express it in another way, we oftentimes um, have uh, political campaigns, uh, candidates contact us asking us for information about how do you reach Latinos? What's the best way to, to get Latinos to turn out to vote? While we can certainly talk about what our research is, we would never be able to be hired by that campaign to then be a campaign consultant. So I can't go to, I would not be an expert witness, for example, in a court case as well. And while I can talk to uh, leaders in various countries around the world, and I have traveled the world to talk about our work, I wouldn't make recommendations about how to address issues around immigration policy, say in Germany, or immigration policy here in the US. That's where we draw our line. So on the one hand, a lot of the work we do is just like any other think tank. And you're right to say that, you know, there's a lot of places that are doing work like this. But I think what you'll see in our reports is that there's never that recommendation section at the end or here's what should be done part at the end. And that's really key to what makes us distinct. I think it helps with our credibility because we're not taking a position. But, you know, some folks do still um, see within the Pew Research Center's work, perhaps a point of view, a point of view that's very Washington inside the Beltway point of view, the point of view that's a very U.S. centric point of view sometimes. And some people say that we have a very, perhaps more of a, a left or a liberal point of view than, say, a conservative or a right point of view. I think, though, it depends on the person you're talking to, because if people from both sides of the aisle are using some of our work, I think we probably hit it right in terms of both sides using it. And if there is criticism, sometimes it comes from both sides, but it might be, you know, depending on the issue, lopsided a little bit. But that's okay. As long as we're kind of getting it from both sides, I think we're probably hitting it in the right spot. So let me ask you, um, I noticed that just here in the few short minutes that we've been talking, you've used both Latino as well as Hispanic. Um, and of course, there's also the term Latine. So, um, and I noticed in your reports on the website, they, they also use <laughs> um, several different terms. So from your perspective, so this is, a, this is a double question. From your perspective, what term is the one that has the most common usage today and why? And then from your perspective from the center, what, what are the main uh, things about the diverse Latino populations that you, you want us to know about? Well, first, let's talk about those those pan-ethnic labels, um, which are really a U.S. invention. So a little bit of history first. 
um, uh, in the 1960s, as Black Americans and the Civil Rights Movement were really gaining ground and making significant changes in both U.S. policy, but interestingly, also the way we count people and how we use that to see who is eligible for or who might be utilizing different policies. The reasons why we collect a lot of the information we collect from the Census Bureau is to be able to understand who is taking advantage of or who is able to use, for example, public education services or other public services so that we can more correctly uh, tailor those services to the size of the population, whatever that population might be. So the, Hispanic, the, the desire to have a measure of how many Hispanics live in the U.S. starts in the 60s. By 1970, the U.S. Census Bureau and the federal government agreed that they're going to collect this information. And then the 1970 census is the first time we have a little bit of a collection of it. But they weren't sure what term to use. And it wasn't until the mid-70s that we see the Nixon administration uh, identify the term Hispanic as a term that would be used in government uh, documents, Census Bureau documents, in order to identify this population. Subsequently, uh, Congress even passes a law to identify who is Hispanic. There's actually a formal definition. Somebody is Hispanic if they trace their roots to the Spanish-speaking countries of Latin America and to Spain. Now, in the 1990s, there's already started to be a little bit of a pushback on this. Do we really want to use Hispanic as a term referencing Spain? Well, what about Brazilians? They're not part of this, but they're in Latin America. So the term Latino uh, gets added uh, to, the, to the federal government's list through the 1997 um, OMB directive about how to report findings on race and ethnicity. Um, interestingly, the federal government is actually thinking about how to change this again. So the federal government is engaging in a new conversation about do we need to change our race and ethnicity standards as we report this data. So you ask about the terms that we use. If you notice, this is kind of coming from uh, largely from a, a, a top down sort of perspective. And our surveys over the years have shown that most Latinos or most Hispanics in this population actually don't have a preference for them. They, they, they don't. They don't use the Hispanic or Latino or Latinx or Latinet terms really to describe themselves. Well, it's interchangeable. It's interchangeable for them. It's interchangeable to them. Uh, they may not even be sure about which one to use, but they're also uh, of the view that it's their country of origin, their family's origin country that matters more. So people will say, I'm Mexican or I'm Dominicana, I'm Cuban, I'm Venezuelan, uh, or even in my case, as somebody who is U.S. born to U.S. born parents, I'm of Mexican American or Chicano origin. So you asked me about which terms should you use? I don't think there's any one that is, is uh, preferable. Um, I think it really depends on the individual. So if you're talking to somebody, I recommend asking or letting that person reveal what they prefer without making any assumptions. Um, but our survey data does show two things. One, a preference for Hispanic, Latino, or Latinx. Most people don't have a preference for either one. However, when you ask the public of this population, which, do, uh, which term should, we use, should, should be used to describe the group? Hispanic is by far preferred. So more than half will say it's Hispanic is the term that people prefer. Now, people who are college educated, live in Washington, live on the coasts, tend to be more Latino and Latinx, but the general public is not so much so. That's interesting. Yeah. Now, there was a second part to your question. I'm trying to remember what the second part so, was. So the second part was th there's so much information <laughs> on, your, on the website, right? Um, yeah. For you, what are the important things that people need to know about this collective mass of people called uh, Latinos or Hispanics or whatever they prefer to be called? 
you, you've uh, mentioned this a few times in the questions that you've asked me, but you've highlighted the one thing that I think is the big takeaway, which is the diversity that exists within this population. So diversity exists in a number of ways. And I think it is the important takeaway, I think, is that this is not a monolithic group. It's a group that's very hard to describe by this panethnic label. I think that's why some people have a hard time picking one or the other because they're like, well, this really isn't me. Um, now, uh, what is the, what are those dimensions of that diversity? The first one is, is all the different places that people are from. So among the 63 million people in the U.S. who say that they're Hispanic or Latino, you'll find that maybe about 58% um, uh, will say that they're of Mexican origin. Another 10% will say that they're Puerto Rican. And then you get maybe like three and a half, two and a half percent are Cuban, Salvadoran, and then Dominicans, Hondurans, Guatemalans will all have at least a million people. And then you have all the representation of Latin America among this among this population. But that's only one dimension of the diversity. The other dimensions are um, uh, immigrant generation. Are you an immigrant? Are you the US born children of immigrant parents? Is your family and their and your family's generations have they been in the US for multiple generations? The experiences of Latinos vary tremendously along those dimensions. Here's another element of diversity. Are you a Spanish speaker or not? Not every Latino is a Spanish speaker. And in fact, we're seeing that among younger Latinos, the share that grew up speaking Spanish at home is actually in decline. Um, so I don't know what the future of Spanish in the United States will be, but that experience, knowing Spanish or not, and are you bilingual? And is it just like a home Spanish or is it formal? That is actually another element of the diversity of the group. And finally, in politics, um, Latino Republicans, Latino Democrats, Latino independents, just like among the US public, there's diversity there too. They have very different points of view. They don't always also match what the general Democrat and the general Republican points of view are for the country. So in this respect, Latino voters or Latinos are distinct. And I want to say one last thing, Michelle, because I think this is actually an important thing to highlight, which is I try not to say um, the Latino community. There's a, a you will hear a lot of folks use that phrase, but that to me implies a unified set of views or mm. uh, a homogeneity mm. that really isn't the case. So I, I try very hard to say Latino voters, the Latino population, people in this group. Um, and in fact, I also try not to use the Latino vote because that also implies that Latinos are a voting block, which, as we know from recent elections, that hasn't been the case. Yeah, that's so true for right. all of our communities, right? Um, it's just like the African-American community is not monolithic. Mm -hmm. We have uh, really conservative uh, fundamentalist believers who vote more according towards the Republican Christ values. Christian the, values. Uh, right, right, right. Mm -hmm. So uh, Christian nationalism and all of that. Um, the same is true amongst uh, Asians. You know, yeah. everybody. Um, and yet the larger white society often uses that, you know, that monolithic mm -hmm. approach because it saves them the need to really examine. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and think. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, that's a very good point. You know, one of the things I would say when, we, when I think about even public opinion research and political polling, here's what you, you normally will see. You'll see results shown for uh, by race and ethnicity. So here are the findings on this whatever question for whites versus blacks versus Hispanics versus Asians. And then there'll be additional analysis. I'll say, here's what white Republicans say. Here's what white Democrats say. Here's what white college educated people say. Here's what white not college educated people say. But 
Blacks, Asians, and Hispanics are just one data point. Right. When, exactly. As you know, there is tremendous right. diversity right. within right. those groups. Exactly. That top line way of presenting data, it's easy as a social scientist to do. That's the way we've been taught to do it and to do these comparisons. Mm. Um, but and now you got me talking about my 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 race and ethnicity strategy at that <laughs> our research strategy at the center. Well, um, well but, you know, well, Mark, you teed us up to go into so many different directions. But let's <laughs> let's go back to where you were mentioning uh, about. Uh, generations within the uh, the Latin community, the Latino community. And uh, one of the studies you worked on uh, was focusing on Latino youth. And you said they are primarily, uh, for the most part, U.S. born. So we were wondering whether that creates a lot of tension between them and their parents who are from other countries. It's a really great question. And so first, let's put some numbers um, um, out there. So when you're talking about the nation's uh, uh, youth population of Latinos, people under the age of 18, um, about 95% were born in the United States. So just most of them are US born. Now among them, maybe about half have parents who themselves are immigrants. So many are the children of immigrant parents. Now in our data, uh, we see that oftentimes the US born children of immigrant parents when they're adults have opinions that are very similar to, the, to immigrants overall. So there doesn't seem to be as much of a distinction as you might as you might expect. But where those distinctions start to emerge is in that third and later generation. That's where we start to see the differences in public opinion on, say, immigration policy, deporting those who might be in the country without authorization. Um, and so that distinction between that third and higher generation versus those who are either immigrants themselves or the children, U.S. born children of immigrant parents, it's really interesting. We haven't quite seen um, uh, a difference between the parents and their uh, immigrant parents and the U.S. born children in our data. So let me let, let us ask you this. I mean, this is going to be two questions. Um, one is then how does how do the generational uh, differences between uh, these communities vote or what have been the voting patterns that you you've observed in your research and with the elections coming up? What are some of the common issues, if any, that both Latino and African-American communities might share? Uh, great question. So first, let's talk about some of these patterns of voter, voter patterns, uh, voting patterns, I'm sorry, by immigrant generation. So we have found that immigrants and the U.S. born children of immigrant parents who are eligible to vote uh, tend to support and identify with the Democratic Party. And we're talking about uh, numbers that might be like, for example, three quarters of immigrant, uh, Hispanic immigrant adults and three quarters of US born, the US born adult children of immigrant parents um, identify with or lean towards the Democratic Party and tend to vote for the Democratic Party. That third and higher generation is where you start to see a little bit of a, of a, of a difference. So instead of 75%, maybe 65% will identify with or lean towards the Democratic Party in terms of party affiliation. Now, um, it's, there are some interesting distinctions here. Among that third generation, Hispanic men tend to be more likely to be leaning towards the Republican Party. However, it depends on where you are in the country and it depends on their origins. And it isn't that uh, their majority identifying with the Republican Party, it's that they're less likely to identify with the Democratic Party, but still a large majority do than say Hispanic women or other groups of Hispanics, like immigrant Hispanics. But does your research ask the question why? Um, so I, part of this has to do, I think, with where they live. Uh, so if we're talking about the third generation and this Mexican-American male component, 
some scholars have proposed that it's a little bit about the machismoness of it. That's part of the reason why they may have supported uh, Donald Trump. But also, some have pointed to that many of these third and higher generation Mexican American men in the Southwest are people who work for the Border Patrol, are people who have worked in, in, in public safety, who people who have been in the military. So there's this connection there as well, which I think is part of the story. Again, we're not talking about really stark differences. This is not like, you know, all men vote Republican, all women vote Democrats. Not like that at all. It's more like, you know, women might be at 72% support for a Democratic candidate and men might be at 60% for the Democratic candidate. Still, the Democrat wins both groups, but there's a notable distinction that seems to be emerging in the last 10 years or so. We can tell the same, the same story on immigrant generation, generally speaking. We can tell the same story about geography. So you see around the country more of a leaning towards Donald Trump in 2020 than in 2016 among Hispanic voters. But it isn't just South Texas. It isn't Florida uh, it, alone. Uh, in fact, all that happened in South Florida is not enough to, to, to explain the shift towards Donald Trump that happened nationally among mm. Hispanic voters. It also appears that it was conservative Hispanic women who actually had the biggest swing towards, towards uh, Donald Trump, according to some scholars. Um, now, this is all really interesting. Uh, it's um, something that uh, we have some good data on this, but we probably need more data to really explain a lot of what's happening here. But again, it happened in Philadelphia. It happened in South Texas. It happened in San Francisco that Latino, largely Latino voting uh, precincts leaned more towards Donald Trump in 2020 than in 2016. You know, Michelle, that's interesting because exit polling had, quote unquote, the Latino community polling under 20%, but exit polling after the election was over had it up to almost 30%. And so there was almost like a 10 point swing. And we in the African-American community have been absolutely baffled by that large swing. And I don't know whether it's because the data was just faulty or, People didn't want to, you know, talk about whether they actually supported Trump at all, at all or not. I don't know. You know, it's a little bit of all of that. Uh, that uh, our research has shown that some of it was that um, um, perhaps the polls may have missed some folks. It's possible, especially in some of the state elections. That's where there's been some challenges with state level polling. The other part of this is is that, and this is not true just of Latinos, but it's true of of all of, of all voters. Um, also, it may be that. Um, um, uh, some people didn't want to speak to pollsters. They they held back, or they may not have answered the questions that, that people like our our team have proposed to them. Um, and as a result, we may not have had a good read. So it goes back to that not having a good read. I will say the evidence is a little bit slim on some of these. Uh, it, it does seem that there were some problems with state level polling, but there's no doubt that perhaps there were more people voting in this last election in 2020 than had been the case in say even 2016 and certainly compared with 2012 that suggests that perhaps people who hadn't been regular voters before decided to turn out to vote and they may be different in their politics than others. Um, in our work, uh, we found that in 2016, uh, Latino voters who did vote, so we verified that they did vote, this is a verified voter site, so we went back and found the records, um, that about 30% supported Donald Trump that number went up to 38% among Hispanic voters in 2020. So we noticed that as, as well, although not quite as sharp of a change during the elections, what you reported that 20% to, that was uh, some, some polling was showing that exactly. So, so let me follow up to that. Um, in terms of the 
the, the change in the percentage that might be getting uh, voting more conservative. Um, recently, we saw that um, this is true, it's true in Atlanta in the 2020 election that the Venezuelans were very uh, um, openly for Donald Trump because they were, or at least people explain it as them being worried about uh, creeping socialism, which is what um, the Republican Party was presenting about the Democrats. But also recently in the transporting of uh, people uh, detained at the border, uh, where Texas and um, Florida are shipping them to other places, there seem to be have been some uh, Venezuelans involved in, um, I'll use this word, and the listeners can't see it, but I'm doing air quotes. <laughs> <laughs> Convincing the people to get on the bus, uh, even if the representation about where they were going was false. Mm -hmm. So does that play into the mix of where people come from and how they tend to vote? Or what, what is the data showing on that? Uh, it's a really great question, and it really focuses on uh, the story that is unique to a state that has been important in recent elections, which is Florida. And so Florida's Latino population is distinct from every other state in a number of ways. And one of those is how diverse it is and the combination of that diversity. So, for example, in California or Texas, the largest single origin group are often Mexicans, and it's certainly a more settled population. It isn't as foreign born. Um, but in a state like Florida, where Latinos make up about a quarter of the state's population and maybe 20% of voters, you'll find that you have people who are Cuban, who are Dominican, who are Nicaraguan, who are Colombian, who are, uh, who are Venezuelan. If you notice, I haven't, and Puerto Rican, and you notice I haven't mentioned Mexicans. So yeah, there's Mexicans in Florida. They They're not the largest origin group in Florida, right. though. It is Cubans who are, and the fastest growing is Venezuelans. Now, Venezuelans have certainly uh, received a lot of attention uh, because their story is similar to that of Cubans. And one of the big questions is, are, are Venezuelan voters going to look more like the, re the Republican counterparts among Cuban Americans than, say, other Latinos around the country? Could very well be. Um, but their numbers are still very small. We're talking maybe about 50,000 eligible to vote in 2020. So while there was a lot of focus on them, you know, that's out of a state that has over, oh, over what, over 8 million voters, over 10 million voters. So this is a state that's huge. And so Venezuelans maybe can make a difference. But I think there was a broader story happening in Florida among Hispanic voters in 2020 than just Venezuelans and just Cubans. But you're right to say that uh, the Trump campaign did focus on issues related to Venezuelans and related to Cubans, that is the embargo, immigration questions that are unique to those two experiences, um, to those two groups, um, that the Biden uh, team was, uh, was not quite as quick to uh, tailor messaging to them in South mm -hmm. Florida. So the Biden team did worse in South Florida than Hillary Clinton did back in 2016. Mm -hmm. But the other important story of Florida that doesn't get as much attention is about Central Florida. And there we've seen many, um, many people move from Puerto Rico to Central Florida. The Puerto Rican population on the island tends to be more evangelical Christian. Mm. So issues of mm. abortion have proven to be more of an issue in some ways. So, and, and frankly, it surprised some reporters who I talked to regularly said, hey, you should go to Orlando. I think there's so much things happening there. And I hear back from those reporters as I, I was surprised to see how many Puerto Ricans were supportive of Donald Trump. 
So this is again, more than just the single origin group story, but the Venezuelan story is one that certainly gets a lot of attention because people think they may be the next Cuban Americans mm -hmm. of uh, Florida. It's fascinating and so terribly complicated. And complicated, yes. <laughs> yeah. So we don't, um, you know, it, it always surprises us when time starts going, but we can't, um, you know, our, our issues are intersectional. So I can't right. allow you to leave without <laughs> talking about the data on your website about um, uh, race and color and how that impacts uh, Latino uh, populations, as well as the um, growing willingness to voice the fact that Afro-Latinos are being, uh, or feel they're being excluded when the discussion is about Latinos. So speak to that a little bit. So the nation's Latino population, that 63 million people, are people who uh, have many different racial backgrounds. And the story of race in Latin America is, an, is a very distinct, in many ways, country by country distinct story. Um, just like in the United States, uh, many people were brought to Latin America as slaves. And so you have um, the presence of people who are of African background, who are of indigenous background, who are of European background. And so that, that mixing of races and particularly the Spanish caste system, which I don't know if you've ever seen these, these drawings of uh, what happens when a Spaniard has a child with somebody who's indigenous, what is a child called? What if you are born in the Americas, but of Spanish lineage and, and still just Spanish, and yet you marry somebody who is indigenous and you have a child. What is that child called? These names like Mestizo from that first mm -hmm. combination, this all, all these labels come from that Spanish caste system. And it was quite detailed and quite sophisticated in sort of all the different combinations, but it captures in many ways the diversity of racial identity in Latin America and the mixing that happened. Brazil has something like over 100 plus racial categories in their census that you can pick and so their 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 racial their census is much more detailed than the racial categories that one could mark um if one wanted to uh, claim different uh, identities and you heard me just say something there that i think is important how people self-identify so this is how people have to tell us what they are in any survey like a census or anything that we do at peer research so what is the racial composition of Latinos? Well, you notice that in our work, we oftentimes say Latinos can be of any race. Census Bureau says the same thing too. Latinos can be of any race. Now, more often than not, the single largest grouping is usually people who say that they're white. So many Latinos will tell us that they're white, but also there's a there are many who say that their race is actually Hispanic. They won't say that their race is white, black, or Asian. They'll say that their race is Hispanic. What's also been drawing a lot more attention recently is the story of Afro-Latinos. And here it's really interesting. You have to ask about it directly. And at the Peer Research Center, we've asked about, do you consider yourself Afro-Latino, Afro-Caribbean, Afro, uh, and all the different uh, origin groups like Afro-Cuban, if the person is Cuban. And we find that maybe about 12% of Latino adults, in fact, 6 million people uh, overall in the nation uh, who are adults, identify as Afro-Latino. That includes some people who don't, they say they're Afro-Latino, but then they don't identify as part of the Hispanic or Latino population. That's an interesting component as well, because they say their race is white, but they identify as Afro-Latino. But it tells you that this is a, this is a I'm, Okay, I'm, I'm confused. I'm completely confused. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I don't mean, I don't mean to, to go, to go to really in depth here, and I apologize. Uh, do you want to ask me a question, Ray? No, no, no. That's it's it's exactly what we wanted to know because uh, then you get into this issue of, you know, are we forcing them to choose? Mm. 
uh, one or the other, or how difficult is it for them to exist in a world where we mm -hmm. have this dichotomous view right. of how people are, right? So that's right. You know, I, I, one of the things I think it's also interesting here is that at Pew Research, we've asked about racial identity in other ways because the way that we think about race in the United States has really been shaped by the way we ask about it in the census. So we ask about it in a very specific way. We, this is in fact the way in 2020 we did it was this way. First, you're asked a question about, are you Hispanic or Latino? And you're asked to indicate what origin group, Mexican, Dominican that you are. The next question is, and it starts out with, for the purposes of this question, Hispanic origins are not races. People still fill it in as a race, but okay, we'll come back to that. But then the second question is, what is your race? Are you white? Are you black or African-American? Are you Asian, Asian-American, such as, and then they give you some examples, American Indian, American Alaskan Native, Native Hawaiian Pacific Islanders. There's a whole bunch of options. There's something called some other race, which you could mark if you don't see yourself in any of those other ones. When you do that, when you do it that way, interestingly, among people of Hispanic origin, who say they're Hispanic, um, only, only about 2% will identify as, as Black. But when you ask them, are you Afro-Latino directly, you get 12%. So I think that this measure of Black and Hispanic isn't quite feeling the way people aren't quite feeling like, hey, that's not really, I don't know if I should mark that or not. But when you directly ask it, you get this number of 12%. And that's where our estimate of 6 million Afro-Latinos in the country is higher than the Census Bureau's estimate, which is an only 2 million. Mm. But that Black and Hispanic estimate doesn't quite, I think, capture the way people see themselves. Yeah. So, you know, that's fascinating because in uh, Cuba, they did a survey. So this would be around uh, 2000. Uh, and they asked Cubans to identify, you know, in their census. And something like 90% of them put down white. Uh, and Castro came out and said, that's impossible. <laughs> <laughs> that's just impossible. Mm -hmm. uh, and so he, um, hired, I think there was uh, 11,000 social workers to go out into the communities and talk to the people and get a better sense of what, you know, how is it that, because you're either mestizo or you're probably Afro kid or whatever, right. but what, what was driving uh, uh, the, the need to identify as white. And so it's a very, um, it's a very complicated issue, yes, and framed so much, as you say, because of the way the U.S. Yeah. looks at race. So mm -hmm. as I'm listening to you talk about categories, where would a Black Asian person put themselves? You could, you could mark both Black and Asian, but I wonder if the current formulation for the Census Bureau uh, captures everybody who might consider themselves Black and Asian in some way. Maybe the maybe the phrasing is not uh, broad enough to capture it. Yeah. Um, unless, you, unless you're Tiger Woods, then you're blazing. <laughs> <laughs> then it's clear. Uh, but you know, I was going to say that uh, you, you, as you were talking about the experiment in Cuba, you know, we at Pew Research have tried other measures of racial identity. So we've done it in other ways. We've also uh, just flat out asked people in an open-ended question, "What's your racial or ethnic identity?" Many people in this population that we're talking about Hispanics say, oh, I'm Latin American or I'm Hispanic or I'm Mexican. So it's really interesting that they identify, they, they say that first rather than I'm white. Right. Um, also, we asked about skin color. Um, mm. We asked people to assess their skin color. And here we found some very interesting findings. Mm. Darker skinned Latinos are more likely than lighter skinned Latinos to uh, say that they've experienced a number of different discrimination experiences we asked about. 
Interestingly, uh, darker skinned Latinos are more likely to say to us as well that they've been discriminated against by other Latinos right. um, compared to lighter skinned Latinos. In fact, the rate of discrimination is about the same as from non Latinos. So it's important to keep in mind that there's intergroup uh, yep. uh, discrimination. Same, same in the black community. Yeah, colorism. Right? Colorism, yep. exactly, colorism. Mm -hmm. And then the, the last measure, the fourth measure of racial identity we asked about was what we call street race. So we asked people, when, when, what do you think people think you are when you walk past them on the street? Like how, how do you think people perceive you? Right. And here, the most common answer, like more than half, was Hispanic or Latino, that they, 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 they think that others are seeing them as Hispanic or Latino, even though they might have told us in the census question their race was white, and yet their skin color might have been more of a darker skin color, and they and the open end they identified as you know as uh, say American, but interestingly um, they think others see them as Hispanic. So all four of these measures, by the way, don't don't nicely line up. Only again, it tells you that how people are answering these questions it depends on the context and who's asking mm -hmm. and how it's asked. I, and there's no one single best way I think to ask about racial identity. But that's just some of the work that we've done at the center looking at uh, this among Latinos. Okay, wow, wow. We could go on here all day long, really. This could be, this <laughs> could be a three-part episode. <laughs> we, we, as always, we get to the time and it's run out. And we, mm -hmm. and we have to pull the thing to a close. So we always ask our guests, um, if, you list, if our listeners only can take away one or two things, right, that they can really grasp and hold in their minds, what, what would you want that to be? First, that the nation's Hispanic population is a fast-growing and demographically important one for the nation. And then the second is that when we talk about this group, this is a group that's diverse of many different origins, backgrounds, and experiences, and not monolithic. Those would be the two big things I would say to take away. Well, Mark, that's just been fascinating. It's been fascinating to talk to you. I hope that at some point we'll be able to come back and, you know, Absolutely. delve more deeply into some of the issues, because really, I know that our listeners are going to be very surprised and, and fascinated by what, what you've told and, us. And Mark, if people were, want to go to your website to look up any of the information that we've been talking about in this episode, where would they go? What, what are they looking for? You want to go to www.pewresearch.org, and that's P-E-W, uh, research.org. Um, and if you look at the topics list, you'll find that there's a topics in the topics list, there's something called race and ethnicity research. If you click there, you'll then be able to filter by Black Americans, Hispanic Americans, uh, Asian Americans, and you'll see all of our work that we've talked about here today. Terrific. Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you. Well, Michelle, Mark was a fascinating guest, and I really urge uh, all of our listeners that if they want more information on the Hispanic community and, and others, Pew Research Center is really a place and a site that you need to go to. You can always educate yourself. Don't wait for somebody to tell you what you should know. If you have questions about something, go to the Pew website. It's more than uh, information about uh, Latinos or Hispanics. It's also Asian Americans, it's African Americans, it's questions on wealth and voting and all kinds of stuff. So go up on their website and check out and educate yourself about uh, whatever the issue is. So this is gonna be, uh, this is an indication that this season is just gonna be fabulous. We've had two excellent ones right in a row. So um, I'm hoping everybody will hang in with us for the full season and see what's coming ahead. If you enjoyed what you heard today, visit our website, NubianTigersPodcast.com. 
In addition to the podcast, we also post a resource page for each subject to provide additional sources of information. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at Nubian Tigers, written as one word. We're also on YouTube on the Nubian Tigers podcast channel, hosted by Anchor FM. But if you have a favorite podcast app, we're probably on it. Just look for Nubian Tigers Talk. Looking forward to sharing some knowledge with you next time. Wake up, wake up, wake up.